This is On and Off Your Mat, podcast episode 17, using yogic philosophy to suffer less. My name is Erica, and I'm your host. For this episode, I sat down with Susanna Friedman. Susanna is a San Francisco Bay Area yoga teacher. She offers yoga retreats around the world, privates and corporates. She is a legacy ambassador for Lululemon, has taught at Wonderlust Festival, and is core faculty at the Love Yoga Story Teacher Training Program. Aside from her 500ERYT, Susanna also received her master's in philosophy and religion and just published her first ebook. Today, we sat down to talk about her yoga journey and the ideas in this book. As always, I really appreciate your support. So as you leave a review on iTunes or on your iPhone podcast app, you automatically enter a giveaway. Once more, Athleta is supporting this podcast in their effort to ignite a community of strong women who lift each other up and is giving out a $75 shop card. If you want to know more, stay tuned. I'll give more details at the end of the show and I'll announce the winner of the last giveaway. So if you left a review, stay with us. On that note, take a listen. I'm sure you'll enjoy. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Erica. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I love it. Awesome. I met Susanna on Instagram and we became friends. I follow and I love everything she does. And a few months ago, she published her first ebook called Suffer Less, Using Yogic Principles to Live a More Peaceful Life. And I got it right away. I mean, who doesn't want to suffer less, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I thought that was a catchy title. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Once I read it and I saw how accessible and interesting it was, I reached out and I invited you on the podcast and here we are. Mm -hmm. And here we are. Mm -hmm. Before we really dig in into our suffering subject of the day, can you <laughs> tell us a bit more about yourself for people that don't know you um, and about your yoga journey? I know you have a pretty interesting path. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of my yoga journey is in the introduction to the book, but um, I, I mean, right now I live in the Bay Area and I teach in Oakland and San Francisco. And then I um, have recently started traveling to teach a lot more, which is really interesting. And it's a great challenge. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, just kind of doing the yoga teacher hustle, uh, which is the only hustle that I'm willing to do. <laughs> um, and um, Yeah, I, I grew up in a house where yoga was pretty prevalent and not so much the physical practice, but the philosophy of yoga. And it's not like my parents were quoting sutras, but just sort of um, the underlying premise of um, kindness and humility and, you know, really sort of doing things for the sake of other people. That was definitely present um, and sort of the axiom that's... Um, really consistent through most world religions, which is, you know, the golden rule, treat others how you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of like the rule in my house. They weren't, my parents weren't that strict, um, but that was definitely something that we were, you know, made aware of and that it was important to live our lives that way. Mm -hmm. um, and my mom, it was really my mom who was more on the path and, and took me to different teachers and different gurus and, um, So I would go and sit with her when I was really young and I was really bored and I really didn't like it, of course. Like because, how old? Oh, like four, five, six. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's funny because the the teacher who we sat with the most, his name's Pandaji, which is a pretty common name. He's now Sri Sri Ravi Shankar. Um, and he has like millions of followers all over the world. Mm -hmm. But at the time, he wasn't well known at all. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this was the late 80s in Santa Barbara in Southern California. So... 
And he'd been to the States, I think, once before then. Um, but so it was this really, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, that is a really epic experience to be sitting with this guru. And stories about him say that um, when he was as young as five, he was often found sitting silent in meditation. Mm-hmm. And he could recite the whole Bhagavad Gita um, from memory at a really, really young age. And, and so it's funny hearing that and then remembering my experience of being five years old sitting in that room with him, which was nothing similar to sitting down by myself and meditating. Um, but I, there was something really special about it and it definitely really stuck with me. And I remember just being so excited for when he would come to visit my, my godparents would house him. And so, and I was up at their house a lot because their youngest son and I are 10 days apart. And so um, their youngest son and I are, would um, just get so excited for Pandaji to come. And he would give up his room so that Pandaji could stay in his room. And Pandaji would bring like all these different mortis and, um, you know, deity statues and all this beautiful stuff from India to make his altar and make the room what he kind of needed it to be. Mm -hmm. And so we would kind of sneak in there and like look at all his stuff. And um, yeah, so it really did start then, but I didn't, I tried asana, like the physical practice multiple times throughout my life, like as a preteen, as a teenager, and it didn't really stick until I was 19. And it's, and then since then it's been pretty. What was the difference once you were 19? Honestly, my vanity really helped me out in that case. Um, It was um, after my freshman year of college, like the summer after my freshman year. And of course, I had gained the freshman 15, maybe even 20. I never actually weighed myself. Um, And I have always been someone who really likes people, likes to to be disciplined in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, there was this Bikram studio in Santa Cruz. I went to UC Santa Cruz and there was a Bikram studio there and they had a really cheap offer, you know, for the first month or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it was renowned for helping people lose weight. And I was really uncomfortable. I mean, at the time I really had a terrible relationship with myself and really hated myself and, um, really thought poorly about my physical appearance. Um, and so I was kind of driven by this sort of like 19 year old anxiety and vanity, um, into this yoga room and something about it. I really like heat. Mm. Um, I mean, it's not the practice that I do anymore, but yeah, something about it. I really liked obviously the physical effects. I really love after a a long practice to feel kind of empty, if that makes sense, like Mm -hmm. totally physically drained. I really love that. And that practice definitely gave that to me. And then I kind of started realizing that like, if I took a few days away, my body felt weird, but it became pretty, pretty apparent pretty quickly that my mind felt really off, Mm. that I like didn't feel as focused. And I think one of the incredible things about the Bikram method aside, I mean, you know, Bikram himself is obviously unbelievably dodgy and has done terrible things. Um, But there's something about staring at yourself for 90 minutes 
that was really challenging for me because I had such a problem with my self image. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately was a point of huge growth and freedom for me because I started looking at myself just as something to look at rather than picking apart Mm. everything I saw. That's an interesting shift. Yeah. It was a huge, huge shift for me. I think that's a really underrated part of that practice, you know, is like, of that lineage specifically is that you just have to stare at yourself for 90 minutes. That's really difficult. Mm -hmm. And I, um, and, and I stuck with it and made sure to not break my gaze as much as possible. Long story short, I mean, vanity got me there and kept me there for the first little while. And then very quickly, I realized that it was, you know, making me feel all around better. Mm -hmm. And And it was kind of like, Go ahead. Sorry. Well, it was one of those things too, where it became like, wait, I can do this for 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess I'm stronger than I thought. And also what I could do anything for 90 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, like I would break things up into like, okay, this is two yoga classes. <laughs> I can deal with that. Like that's how my mind worked at the time. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, how did your early exposure translate or when did it start to come back into your life into more than just the asana practice? I think that it was always really prevalent. I mean, I have always talked very openly about God, Mm -hmm. which for me is a much more sort of like yogic perspective. I mean, my dad's Jewish. My mom's Episcopalian. I think we went to temple once and church once but I did go to Hindu Sunday school. And so I think it was always there, but I didn't really start like studying the texts and stuff until after college. Mm. Didn't you study, do you have like an MA in philosophy? Yeah. So I have my master's in, it's, it's specifically philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness studies. So it's under the umbrella of philosophy and religion, but that wasn't until I had already done my first yoga teacher training once I started my master's. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had some idea in my head that I would like do something else. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, once I did my first teacher training, I like quit what my life path had been. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to be a yoga teacher. This is it. Yeah. So I don't really know. I kind of felt like a little bit lost, a little bit unsure of what to do. My stepmom, who's a great mentor of mine and a great teacher, like recommended this program. And I thought to myself, you know, like, why not? Mm -hmm. I can still teach yoga and do this. Mm -hmm. And I just knew that it was kind of time for me to use my brain in that way again. Mm. And do you find that you, it serves you now as a yoga teacher? Absolutely. Mm. I mean, I, I read yoga philosophy before I got my master's. I read a lot, Mm -hmm. but the way that I was retrained to read philosophy changed the way that I read these texts. And so it made the texts more available to me to a certain degree. Of course. Um, And now, you know, in writing this book and in, um, I'm starting to write a lot of other things and work on a lot of other content that isn't asana related. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that I had to write multiple 20 page papers has really helped with that, you know? Sure. Um, so just I like definitely anything can be breaking a yoga class, any book can be breaking just 20 page papers and put together. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Coming back to the book itself, why did you decide to write a book on suffering? Um, well, this is, you know, somewhat personal, but if anybody knows me, I'm a pretty straightforward, open book. I always knew that I would write something 
about yoga philosophy because putting the practices that are given in the yoga sutras into my daily life was huge for me and was a big transformation. So I kind of always knew that I would do something like that. And then this last year, I've, I've suffered from depression off and on since mm, probably my early 20s, late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. And um, this last year was by far the hardest year in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a lot of other things that happened with my family. And it was just a really, really, really difficult year you know, yoga really kept me sane. And the asana practice did part of that. But remembering the philosophy that I've also practiced on a daily basis is really what kept me in check. Mm-hmm. I think once you have some sort of understanding of the root of yoga philosophy or the root of who we are, actually, then it's easier to take a step back from the suffering. It's easier to not identify with the suffering as who you are. Mm-hmm kind of was just sort of born out of what I've gone through in the last year, plus what I've been thinking about for the last, you know, eight to 10 years. Obviously, the yogic texts were important for you because you just mm-hmm. mentioned you wanted, you knew you wanted to work on that. Was the link super clear for you, yogic texts and suffering? It's kind of one of the main message, right, in the text, like how to have a life where you have not necessarily less suffering, but more fulfillment or more, mm-hmm. not necessarily like the word happiness, but more ease yeah. at least. Yeah. I mean, I would venture to say happiness. I, yeah. I don't think that's a word we should shy away from. I think that we've shied away from it for far too long. And it's something that everybody innately deserves. Like it's, it, it's not just for a few people. Happiness is a right that you're born with and we're conditioned out of that. And, um, so I think happiness is like, Do you have an opinion why? Oh man. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't, mean, I don't know the answer. I'm just I don't either, but I think <laughs> I think one of the one of the big things is that first of all from a commercialism standpoint, if we're happy, we're not going to keep buying things. Sure. So, we're like told that we don't have enough, we're told we're not enough mm-hmm. constantly, and then we're told but if you get this, you'll feel a lot better. Mm. Um so I think that's a big part of it. And then I think it's just also part of human nature to want. Then when we don't get the thing we want, we feel unfulfilled and then we suffer. Those are kind of, and I think that, you know, commercialism and capitalism knows that very, very well Absolutely. and takes full advantage. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Okay, so we started to touch on that idea of suffering. Can you walk us through kind of the sutra, the yoga sutra's take on suffering? Like what is suffering according to that text and or what are the causes according to Patanjali? Sure. So there are many causes. The two root causes are misidentification with the true self, mm-hmm. which is called avidya. It's a klesha. So it's sort of one of the psycho-emotional triggers or roadblocks that gets in our way of really deep understanding. And so avidya is known as the breeding ground upon which all other confusion and suffering is bred. Because according to yoga philosophy, we are God and Mm -hmm. everything we see is God. And it's really difficult to understand and it's really difficult to sort of grasp and grapple with. It's that everything emanates from the same thing. Good and bad becomes a little bit more difficult to delineate. Right and wrong sometimes gets a little bit trickier. If we could really understand our own inherent godliness, if we could really understand that we have everything we could possibly need 
then we wouldn't reach out of ourselves as much. Mm-hmm. There'd be nothing to suffer over because everything is just God. And so there's nothing that you don't have that someone else has that you need. And then the other part of it is our attachment. So, and that's like our attachments. Once you start paying attention to what you're attached to, you realize that your whole life is run by your attachments and your whole life is run by your reaction to those attachments. Mm. There are some things that, you know, we kind of need to be attached to. So for instance, if you are a parent, you need to have an attachment to your children. It would be really irresponsible for you not to have an attachment to your children. You know, there are attachments that we need to foster, but the attachments that we need to foster are ones that pull us closer to our highest self, which is peace and bliss and infinite possibility. That's what Mm -hmm. the truth of who each one of us is. And then there are those attachments that really do not need to be cultivated at all. I say this all the time in practice, and this is just one example But when you come into class with a really strong agenda, like today I'm going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to do every chaturanga and I'm going to, you know, do the biggest backbend that I can do, Mm -hmm. which we're all guilty of. Like at some point or another, most of us go into class with some sort of agenda. And then we have this attachment to that agenda because in our minds, we've decided that like if those things don't happen, then it wasn't a fulfilling class. Mm -hmm. inevitably those things aren't going to happen because you're not (laughs) teaching the class. So you have to do what the teacher says, basically. Then all of a sudden there's this frustration and there's this anger. And all of that is because you just were attached to an idea of what it should be. Mm -hmm. And that is so much of our suffering, thinking that things should be other than they are in the moment, which is very different from taking action on something. We shouldn't be complacent and we shouldn't, be passive in the sense of letting things that are really wrong continue to go on. Mm-hmm. But we do really have to acknowledge the truth of what the situation is before we can take action on it. Otherwise, we won't be able to work with it. We're just working with what our idea of what it should be is. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you find in there there's a difference between expectation and attachment? That's a great question. No, <laughs> I don't think so. I think expectation is an attachment. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference in the way that suffering is explained between the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita? Yes and no. The underlying philosophy is the same. Mm-hmm. You know, release yourself from your attachments and understand your true nature. That's yeah. basically like the underlying theme of the Bhagavad line. Gita. And it, it's just described in two very, very different ways. So I think it really depends on what kind of learner you are. The Bhagavad Gita is like this really beautiful story that is a metaphor for the struggle that every person has. Arjuna is the every man or every woman or every person. And he is in the middle of this battlefield. And in the story, he's fighting the two sides are two sides of the same family. So he's stuck in this position of choosing which side to fight for, which is kind of already given to him because it's, his, it's the closer side of his family. That's a, in many ways a metaphor for us standing in the middle of the battlefield of our daily existence, choosing between whether we want to fight for our better nature or whether we want to fight for our more base nature. And the better nature includes releasing attachment. The better nature includes trying at least to understand 
who we really are. So that's kind of the way that the Bhagavad Gita is set up. It's it means song of the Lord, which I just love. And it's really mm. it's you know, it's really beautiful. It was heard first and then told verbally for, you know, years and years and years before it was written down. The mm-hmm. sutras are much more methodical and much I kind of don't want to use this word because I don't want to scare people away, but drier. There isn't like all the exposition on the sutras are commentaries. Like Patanjali didn't it's write. It's more cerebral. It's much more cerebral. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Patanjali didn't write commentary on the sutras. He just wrote the thing. So any text that you get that has commentary is someone who has studied for a very long time, who ideally has worked with the sutras for a very long time, and then has studied the people who were first commenting on it. So it's this combination of personal experience and trusted knowledge. But, you know, the women you had on the podcast, I think it was your last podcast, Living the Sutras living or the Living... Sutras? Yeah. So two episodes ago. Yeah, two episodes ago. That book is really amazing because it's so much less dry. Yeah, it's very boiled down and very simple. Yeah, I teach in the Love Story Teacher Training. We use the Swami Satchitananda version of the Yoga Sutras, mm-hmm. which is also really um, palatable. Like, he has a lot of great stories. He's really easy to read. But I I think for someone who's not in a teacher training and for someone who's sort of just trying to understand the gist of it, I actually Mm -hmm. think that living the sutras is probably the better choice. Mm. For like teacher training or philosophy intensives, I think there are other texts that we can use. After having just read it, I mean, it's brand new, you know, it just came out. So Mm -hmm. um, I think it's, I'm so happy it came out because I feel like that's a better resource that I get to point people to if they're interested Mm. in the sutras. It's a great starting point to not feel overwhelmed with the sutras. Totally, yeah. How important are all those texts to you? I mean, they're so important. We are part of the Raja Yoga system, which which includes the eight-limbed path. Mm -hmm. And one of the limbs is Svadhyaya, which is self-study, which means studying the sacred texts by yourself and working with them so that you have an embodied understanding of them. And then it also means studying yourself, like how you are in the world and what your internal nature is. You know, the reason why I wrote this based around the sutras was because this stuff really works. Like it really, really works. It's been around for thousands of years. It stood the test of time. And I think one of the things I love about living the sutras it isn't, as you said, it's not as intimidating. It's not as scary. And so one of the reasons I wanted to write Suffer Less and base it around yogic principles is because I think they're just, like my boyfriend is not a yogi at all, at all. He read the book, you know, I said, what do you think? Like, what did you think about the exercises? And what did you think about, you know, just everything that was in there and the points made? And he was like, yeah, it's just like being a good person and common sense. And I was like, yes, exactly. Like the yoga sutras to me is just common sense, but in a very rigorous way because Mm -hmm. we don't really follow common sense that regularly (laughs) if you think about it. Yeah. We follow our desire, which pulls us away from common sense. Do you think there's a link between your personal like of discipline and the study of these texts? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I actually, that's the first time anyone has like made that connection. Pointed it out. Yeah. Yeah, but... I, yeah, there's something I really, really enjoy about holding myself accountable in that way. 
And, you know, even though my teacher isn't checking in on me to see if I'm studying, Mm -hmm. I kind of pretend like she is, you know, because I still need that. Well, if that helps you, if it gives you the little extra push you need. Yeah. It's a great strategy. Yeah, totally. And right now I actually am working one-on-one with this yoga philosophy scholar and Sanskrit scholar. And so I do actually have to do it for somebody, which is really nice. I just really love being in that role of student. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get it. I love it too. So the book is called Suffer Less Mm -hmm. and not Don't Suffer Anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, In a nutshell, we're trying to ease suffering because we can't totally get rid of it, right? It's actually an inevitable in our life. Um, I think, yeah. I mean, the simple answer is yes for most of us. Mm. You know, if you come in karmically super high and if you're like a liberated being who has just come back as a bodhisattva to help all of us along, I honestly don't know how much that person is suffering. Like, I, I don't know how much Pandaji, now Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, I don't know how much he suffers, you know, because I don't know how much attachment he has. Would you like to ask him that question? I would love to ask him that question. I tried to see him last time he was in town. It was during a teacher training that I was in. And, um, and also he had like 10,000 people there. I mean, I really tried to get in contact with the inner circle and tried to find out who I could talk to to see him in person again. And it just didn't work out. But yeah, I mean, I'm going to be in India for three weeks in 2019. And I really hope he's around because I will make the trek to find him and try to mm. sit with him. Um, but I'd love to ask him. Yeah. And I think for the rest of us, it again, so for me, my goal really is ultimately total self-realization. Like for mm-hmm. me, my liberation. Yeah, for me, my goal really in this life is to reach um, samadhi, sustain samadhi. Now, I don't know if that's going to happen. As of right now, I can venture to say it's not. It might not. <laughs> Again, I'm a really disciplined person, so that drives my fire. You know, mm-hmm. I think for most people who don't have a background in Hindu Sunday school, who don't have a background of like their parents dragging them to all these things, it is just about how can I relieve my own pain? Because we think we don't have agency over that. And we do. We look to other people to make us feel better, which is understandable and is not a bad thing, but it it doesn't have to be. And in my opinion, I would say, nor should it be the only way that you self-soothe. It's very disempowering. It's extremely disempowering. We all need people to lean on. We all need people to prop us up. I mean, my business manager is an incredible person. And, you know, I have a lot of insecurities and fears and I'm a normal person. And every once in a while, I just text her and I say like, am I doing the right thing? Like, should I? And even though I know the answer, I just need some outside bolstering and perspective and help. I get that that is a need for many, many, if not most people. I also know that I myself, as you said, just feel so much more powerful when I can quell whatever storm is raging inside of me by sitting to meditate or reading part of the Bhagavad Gita or another text or doing 20 minutes of asana. I feel so much more in charge of my own life and my own happiness, knowing that I have at least some power over the thoughts that keep me down. Mm -hmm. And I've learned, and I've also seen that over the years as I, someone the other night, I was at an event about self-care and someone called yoga mind training. It's absolutely mind training. You know, your brain is a muscle. So the more I work this muscle of focus and non-attachment, the easier it is for me to go there 
And the easier it is to soothe myself out of that suffering more quickly or to recognize it more quickly. Mm-hmm. It is a, like in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna tells Arjun that it's a cumulative practice, that every little step you take on the path counts because it is grooved into your experience and it's grooved into your brain. And now, you know, neuroscience has also proven that it is grooved into your brain quite literally. So the more you do that thing, the deeper that groove gets. And you just imagine like water goes down the path of least resistance Mm -hmm. and our ego and our mind is kind of like water in that way, where if you keep working and training your mind towards letting go of attachment, that comes more easily. If you don't work towards that and you keep digging the groove of happiness through fulfillment of your attachments, that's the way it's going to go. And there won't be much relief from suffering that way. Yeah, that will become the path of least resistance. But you can make non-attachment the path of least resistance. It just requires a lot of work. And I'm not saying I'm there at all. But I do recognize that it's much easier for me now to let go of my attachments than it was before. Day to day, how do we do that? How do we ease the suffering or how do we avoid the future suffering? Um, I mean, no one is going to like this answer. Um, But honestly, finding a way to watch yourself. So whether that's seated meditation or going on a bike ride or going on a hike or swimming, whatever it is for you, something where there's space enough that you have the ability to step away from whatever thought you're engaged with and remind yourself that you are not that thought. Like one mantra I give people very often is, I am not my body, I am not my mind. I am not my body, I am not my mind. Even just carving out some space in your day to like journal about what that means or just repeat that to yourself or whatever the case may be, because it is a cumulative practice, just something small every day. Like we so often go for broke that we burn out. Um, and then whatever it is we were trying, we just sort of leave by the wayside because we've, you know, used up all of our capacity for that project. So I think it really is faith that the changes will come if you do something every day. Like the change isn't going to come unless, again, you come in as a liberated being or almost liberated The change isn't going to come in one day. The change is going to come over a long period of time through these small little acts. So for me, meditation has definitely been the thing. For listeners who are like terrified of meditation, I hated meditation when I first started. I just forced myself to do it. And to be honest, like I still really strongly dislike and have a difficult time with the first five to 10 minutes of sitting. For yogic practitioners who kind of have a stronger practice and still meditation is really difficult, I'd recommend doing pranayama before. That always really helps me clear Mm -hmm. my mind. But I had an ex who rode his bike a lot and that was his meditation. And that was when he could kind of watch himself. So the first thing is giving into Mm -hmm. understanding or at least trying to sort of even just flirt with the thought that you are not your thoughts. You are not your emotions. You are not your mind. You're something that is far deeper than that that isn't changed by any of those things. If you can even sort of start to play with that idea a little bit, it usually will open up some space for at least one time in the day for you to think something and be like, oh, wait, that's interesting. Like, I'm having this reaction. Wow, I'm really nervous right now, and I'm letting that say who I am. 
whatever the case may be. But I think it's Mm -hmm. just the small things. And then, you know, there are things that you can do, like recognize a pattern that you're really attached to in your day-to-day life. And for at least like a week or longer, give up that thing and see what happens. A lot of people will do like coffee or give like their, their evening piece of chocolate or nightcap or whatever it is that you do. Not giving into a really strong desire. Yeah. And not giving into a really strong to. desire mm-hmm. is really illuminating as to how and do you much think of a that, pull that thing um, has on Like you. self-kindness or self-compassion is a big key in that. It's not just observing, but also watching how you react to those observation and talk to yourself about them. Abs- absolutely. I think that's a little bit down the road. Yeah. Um, I think that that is actually like a very, I mean, Next I think. Step. Yeah, that's a really hard thing to do is to watch all of your shit with kindness. <laughs> you know, first you have to learn how to see what's going on. Yeah. For At sure. least for me. I think maybe some people are more kind to themselves in general. And so that transition might not be as difficult. But for me, it, I really had to like see what was happening before I could love it. I'm not even saying love it. I'm just. Yeah. I mean, accept it or yes. not fight it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I will say that the moments of great relief for me, like in terms of friendships or relationships or any, whether that's romantic or with a boss or whatever the case may be. Uh, I just totally lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. That's so (laughs) bizarre. Will you say the last thing that you said again? Um, That it didn't have to be fully about love, but... Oh, right. There was, I had this really pivotal meditation a while back where... Mm -hmm. I felt like I was in this really peaceful place, really peaceful place. And then sort of at the edge of my consciousness and awareness felt annoyance. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is that? What is that about? And then I realized it was because there was somebody who I had a really big fight with, who I was kicking out of that space of love and compassion. And as soon as I like just allowed them to be there in that space with me, that annoyance and that anger completely dissipated. So I think maybe it starts with just not being as mean to yourself. Like mm-hmm. I think for some of us, that really is where it starts. Okay. But I think that ultimately and hopefully it does end in you loving all parts of yourself. Life project. Total life project. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any of these things like down pat. I'm just working on them. <laughs> yeah, we are all. One last thing. How was the process of writing the book itself? I mean, like creating the exercises, because you already talked about it was easy-ish for you to write from your background. How is creating or including the exercises part of it? You know, what's interesting is that I knew I had the stamina to write this Mm -hmm. because of my past Mm -hmm. um, experience in grad school, but it didn't make it easy to write it. In fact, Mm -hmm. I felt so much pressure writing this And it was all internal pressure. And it's because I love it so much that I was just so, so, so worried. Mm -hmm. Like so worried about whether I was getting something wrong. Um, So worried whether people would think it was like thin or who is this person. I mean, I had to come up against a lot, a lot of self-criticism and a Mm -hmm. lot of self-doubt in writing this. And I'm so glad that I didn't let those things stop me because in the past, they very easily could have stopped me. And then, you know, the response has been really sweet and really generous and great. And I felt after I finished, I felt really good about it. And I also felt like, okay, this is the beginning and I'm going to add more to this. Like Mm. I will fill this out more. 
But I just knew I needed to get something out because if I didn't, I never would. Like I put the release date on myself and everyone kept saying like, Susanna, you can push this back. You can push this back. No one, you know. And I was like, no, I can't. I will not. And I'm so glad I didn't. So that part of it was really interesting. And it's funny because the exercises after I wrote each section Mm -hmm. and the exercises came to me really easily. Mm. And I think it's because I... There are a couple of things. I've done a lot of workshops and a lot of work. I mean, a, a lot of those exercises are things that I've just done for a long mm-hmm. time yeah. regarding that material. And then the ones that were newer, for whatever reason, just came. And I'm so grateful that they mm-hmm. did. Um, you know, I would get moments of being stuck or I'd get towards the end of a section. And I'd be like, oh, my God, I don't know what the exercises for this section are going to be. And then I would just put it away for a little while and I would ask God for some help. And which basically to me means like asking my highest intuition for some Mm -hmm. help Mm -hmm. and it would show up. And that's the other really amazing thing. Mm. Like if you're willing and you're open, it will come. And if you get quiet enough to hear. Yeah, you exactly. If you get quiet enough to hear, it's a great point. Yeah. (laughs) So what's next for you? Any other project brewing that you can share with us? Yeah. So um, I'm right now finishing up a, an online course for spirituality and health magazine. They just launched an online platform Mm. and it's actually, um, it's about astrology. And so it's like four different sections, your chart and love, your chart and your energy, your chart and karma, your chart and your wound. I'm finishing that up and that will be released at some point in December. I'm not Mm. entirely sure when. Can't wait. Yeah. I'm super excited. Um, astrology is something else that I've been doing for a really long time. Yeah, we haven't even gotten around to it, but maybe another episode. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Um, and it's funny, like I'm just being asked more than ever. I mean, I've, I've done readings for as long as I've been teaching. And all of a sudden, I mean, not all of a sudden, I was on the Yoga Land podcast and we talked about astrology. And so mm-hmm. since then, just so many people reaching out with questions, so many people wanting readings. And I'm sort of realizing like, okay, people really want this right now. Mm-hmm. For some reason, they're asking me for it. So I'm just going to embrace it. Do I'm going to do what's being asked of me, you know? Mm-hmm. There's that. And then there are a couple other things that I'm oddly superstitious about. I'm just sort of writing more, which is exciting. And I am planning on filling this book out more um, and possibly turning it into a full book proposal. But I'm not really in any rush. I'm kind of trying to deal with what's right in front of me right now. We're gearing up for teacher training again and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot. Awesome. I will put all your info in the show notes, but if people want to reach out to either say hello, ask you for a reading or follow your work, where's the best place for them to find you? Best place either to sign up for my newsletter, which goes out quarterly unless there's a special announcement. So I would say I send out like seven newsletters a year. It's really Mm -hmm. not that much. So that I always like announce upcoming events, you know, retreats and things like that. Then Instagram, I always post what I'm like the upcoming events on Instagram. And then I also um, have links in my bio to everything I'm doing. So like you can buy my book directly from there, also from my website. But those are the two best avenues, I think. And they're both just Susanna Friedman Yoga. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. And for your great questions. Uh (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We have other great guests coming up, so make sure to subscribe. Now, if you want to make my day, you want to help other people find this podcast or and get a chance to win a $75 shop card from Atleta, 
All you have to do is head on to iTunes or on your podcast app on your iPhone and write a review. As you leave your review, you automatically enter a giveaway and I announce the winner on the next episode. If you're newer to reviews, you can check out the show notes for instruction. And for more info about our guests of today, you can also go to my website at ericabelanger.com slash blog dash podcast. And I write my first name with a K. Last episode was also supported by Atleta. Thank you so much if you left a review. The winner of that giveaway is user Kara Edwards. Kara said, I absolutely love tuning in to On and Off Your Mat with Erica. It's been incredibly educational with a wide range of talented teachers, including so many of my favorites local Bay Area teachers. Erica always asks the deeper questions that I want answers to and has a way to deliver a genuine heartfelt conversation like you would have with a good friend and it doesn't feel like an interview. I always look forward to the next one. Bonus, the sound quality is always on point. Well, Kara, thank you so much for your comment. Email me at erica.belanger at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram and I'll send you your shop cards. Once again, thank you for joining in and until next time.